Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is surf music pioneer, Safari's guitar player, Bob Berryhill. But first of all, social numbers. Every year, Edison Research comes out with a report, and it's called The Infinite Dial. And it looks at a wide variety of things that apply to music over the radio. And since so much is built around social media these days, that's included as well. So Edison Research found a lot of things that I think you'll find interesting. I know I did. First of all, social media use in the United States dropped a little bit. It dropped from 80% of the population to 79%. 223 million Americans use social media every day. So, what do they use? Well, guess what? Even though everyone is down on Facebook, it's still the most used social network by far. Closely followed by Instagram, Pinterest, and Snapchat are basically neck and neck. LinkedIn, Twitter, and WhatsApp. Now, Facebook has taken a hit, though. There's 15 million fewer users on Facebook than there was last year. It still amounts to a lot. 172 million of us use Facebook. Now, again, this is just the United States. But the biggest hit is between ages of 12 and 34, where Facebook usage is down by 20% just in one year. So, in fact, that age group, which is very pivotal and very influential, is going away from Facebook fast. What do they use instead? Well, Instagram and Snapchat, they use almost as much as Facebook. And basically, all three of them have about the same amount of usage, give or take a percentage or two. Now, here's something I found interesting. 84% of Americans aged 12 and over own a smartphone. Age 12 and over. (laughs) That's pretty amazing in itself. 65 million people own smart speakers. Boy, that one really knocked my socks off. It's mostly Amazon that they use. And once you buy one, you're going to buy another one because what they found was there's usually two per home. Now, when we go to streaming music networks, this again was very interesting. I bet you can't guess what's the most popular streaming music network in the United States. Yeah, I know you're going to say Spotify, but you'd be wrong. It's Pandora. Yeah, it goes Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Music, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, and way, way, way down, bringing up the rear, is Google Play. Now, that being said, this has everything to do with age group. Because if you looked in total at all Americans, it's Pandora that we use. But if you're between the ages of 12 and 34, it's Spotify. So this report goes on and on. There's a lot of great information. But really, what does all this mean? Well, it means the online tastes are changing. And it has everything to do with age. So if you're young... Chances are your tastes in what you do online are way different than if you're past age 34. Now, my question is, what happens at age 35? Are they going to change more into Gen X, baby boomers? Are their tastes going to be different because of family obligations, because of work? Or are they going to continue to use the same apps, the same online services, Is it all going to be the same? So that should be really interesting. I think in two or three years, this will start to shake out, and I think we'll know a lot more then. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowenercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Here's something relatively new. Do you know what skip rate means? I bet you don't. But if you're a young executive at a record label, this is one of your mantras. You follow skip rate. So let me explain what it is. Skip rate 
is how quickly someone skips your song. Now, on a streaming network, you won't get a royalty if someone skips before 30 seconds. So 30 seconds is what everyone is aiming for. You want to keep someone involved listening until they hit 31 seconds, then you get paid. If they go on to another song before that, they've skipped, and it increases your skip rate. Now, this changes a whole lot because albums are now being built on skip rate. Once upon a time, when this didn't matter, we sequenced albums in a way that felt good. So we'd listen to the tempos of the song, we'd listen to the content, we'd listen to just about everything, and then determine what fits from one song to another because they're all interactive, so to speak. No more. Albums are built around skip rate and you load the songs up on the front of what you think is going to be the lowest skip rate. So basically, you make an album now just like a playlist, aiming for that number one position. On a playlist, you always want to be number one, and it's the same thing on an album. Whatever you think is going to have the lowest skip rate, that's what you put at the top. The whole idea is if a listener can make it past the first six songs, then you pretty much have a classic album. (laughs) Chances are it's not going to happen, though. Now, as a result of this, concept albums pretty much are not going to exist pretty soon because if you have a concept album, it's going to violate the whole idea behind skip rate. This also applies to videos as well. And basically, you're going to make sure that any kind of intro that you have, and it used to be it would be some sort of cinematic intro and then the song would start, but guess what? People are not going to sit through that anymore, so they're trying to keep those to a minimum. So skip rate is having a big influence both on the albums that you listen to, on the songs that you listen to, and in the videos that you watch. My guest today is surf rock legend Bob Berryhill. Bob is a founding member of the Safaris, and every guitar player since 1963 has learned how to play the band's big hit, Wipeout, sometime early in their career. The song, which Bob recorded when he was 15, sold over a million copies, rose to number two on the Billboard charts when it was released, and has re-entered the charts a number of times since, thanks to being used in various movies and television shows. The band went on to record other surf hits like Surfer Joe, Point Panic, Similu, and others. Bob and the band still perform at concerts around the country. In the interview, we talked about how Wipeout was written, and you're not going to believe the story. We talked about the gear he used, then and now, his relationship with Leo Fender, and much more. I spoke with Bob via phone from his home in Southern California. Let's start with the beginning, and I guess the beginning is Wipeout, right? How did everything start? Well, we were uh, sophomores in high school. We were about 15 years old. And uh, I got a call from uh, Jim Fuller and Pat Conley, the other guitar player and bass player. And they called me one day and said, hey, Bob, can we come over and rehearse? So this is about September of 1962. So just starting our sophomore year in a high school at Glendora High School in, in California. And uh, came over for about three hours and practiced with me and said, hey, uh, uh, we've got a, a gig tonight at Pomona Catholic High School after a football game you want to play that? I said, well, sure. They said, well, we don't have a drummer. And uh, Pat goes, well, we're going to meet the drummer there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what a, you know, that puts shivers up your spine, you might say, when you think about that. But uh, yeah, it worked out. We loaded my equipment, uh, my um, Bandmaster amp and uh, my Telecaster, my Jaguar, Jazzmaster rather. And uh, Fuller had a dual Sonic. We threw that in the car and we Drove out to um, with my mom and dad because we didn't have driver's licenses, right? Yeah. <laughs> drove us out to uh, the school, and there was Ronnie setting up his drums under the under the basketball hoop in the gym, and everybody was around, crate papering the walls and decorating. And sure enough, we played that night, and it was great. Everybody loved it. So that was kind of you know how we began. And then about um, oh a couple months later, I think it was November of '62, Ron Wilson came to. Uh, one of our uh, rehearsals, we'd start rehearsing and keeping the band together. And he said, Hey, Bob, I have had a, a dream about a song called Surfer Joe. I said, Wow, that's cool. Why don't you sing it? So, Ronnie, being a drummer, started playing his drum beat on Surfer Joe and started playing 
Surfer Joe and was singing it, and I kind of put some chords to it and got an arrangement going, and, and we all kind of played along. And after we got it worked out, our manager, Dale Smallin, uh, goes, hey, uh, boys, you want to record that? Sounds like a Beach Boy song. I went, oh, yeah, cool. So uh, we met in my driveway uh, in December of 1962. All the boys are standing around, uh, Jim Fuller, Pat Conley, Ron Wilson, and myself, Bob Berryhill. We were standing there, and Dale goes, okay, I need money. <laughs> and uh, everybody pulls out their pockets of nothing and goes, I don't, we don't have any money. I went, oh, great. Well, what, what does any self-respecting boy do? He runs in the house and asks mom for a check. <laughs> and so, so I did, and she wrote me a check for 150 bucks. And, and uh, so I came back outside with it, handed uh, Dale Small in the check, because he was kind of managing us at that time. And uh, he says, okay, let's go. So we packed in uh, two, three cars. Actually, I had, actually I had my learner's permit. So I had, a, I had rebuilt a 56 Ford pickup truck at that time. And so we threw all the equipment back in my truck. And, we, uh, and the other guy's gotten uh, Dale's uh, Chrysler Imperial and my Uncle Don and his uh, Chevy station wagon. And we drove out, not to Hollywood, but we went to Cucamonga, huh. California which is a, just a little ghost town out in the desert. Anyway, we drove out there on a cold, uh, almost rainy night and uh, got up to the door of the uh, studio, and it looked like a ghost town, and it was like an old shoe store, like an old Carl's shoe store. The windows were all blacked out and knocked on the door, and this little scrubby little guy comes to the door with red hair, opens it up, and goes, Hi, I'm Paul Buff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, welcome to PAL Studios. So we showed up and uh, went in there and set all our equipment up and the bass. Uh, we didn't have a bass guitar, and so Pat uh, whips out a bass guitar that he borrowed from his cousin. He had never played bass before. He'd played two finger chords on my Telecaster for the first three months we were together. Anyway, he pulls that out and plugs that in direct, and then we go through my my uh, bandmaster and another amp that we had a small amp there. Uh, so we hooked up and started playing Surfer Joe. So that got us through the, through the event. We got it all, Surfer Joe all done. Ronnie sang the vocal and sounds real good. And Paul Buff goes on the talk back button. Boys, you need a second song for your 45. And we said, well, we hadn't written another song. That's how prepared we were, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, Ronnie starts playing this drum beat and Wipeout is, is born. You know, here's this drum beat going on. It's like a marching band cadence, really, but it's a drum beat. And I go, well, we better put some chords and a bass and a melody, or this is going to be a drum solo. Because <laughs> Ronnie was that kind of a drummer. He would, he would just take the show and and go crazy, kind of like the drummer in Led Zeppelin and the Who. Those two guys that were really wild drummers. Ronnie was the was that type of guy. He was just going to take the show. And so I said, well, let's go in the key of B. So I started playing some chords and making a sort of a drum break at the right points and the bass player goes and Fuller goes puts out the melody and so it starts forming the song so we had one time we played it once and they said okay well let's try it again so we played it one more time and they said okay one more time for the Gipper so we played it a third time and they said we got it and we go okay so that was the song and then they go well what are you going to name it and uh, Jim Fuller grabs a uh, switchblade out of his pocket that he'd gotten in Tijuana the uh, weekend before, clicks it over the same microphone that Ronnie was singing Surfer Joe on, goes, click, switchblade. <laughs> <laughs> and we go, and naturally a sound man is going to hear a click, and he's going to go, you know, that doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. So my dad goes out in the alley behind the shoe store, old shoe store, and comes back in with a cement-soaked piece of plywood. Pat Conley, the bass player, grabs it, cracks it over the microphone and it sounds like a busting surfboard huh. and we go well there's already a song called busting surfboards busting surfboards and so we kind of thought well what what happens well you get wiped out when you so we all kind of kicked around that term and we're going you know it's kind of like goofy going over the falls you know when you go over and crash and so dale smolin the uh our basically our manager comes out of the control room comes around to the microphone and goes Ha, 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 wipe out. Just like that, out of the blue. Nobody had ever heard it before. And so they put the crack on there, or the, and the laugh 
put the song together, and two weeks later, we had a 45 with Wipeout, Surfer Joe. Let me get this straight. So this was born in the studio. You'd never played it before. You played it three times, and that was it. That was it. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's all on quarter-inch reel-to-reel tape in monorail. <laughs> so it was like the middle. And what was great about it is that, you know, it's kind of like our, our whole career has really been like a bunch of dominoes. Things had to happen in these orders for it to all happen. So these were the first sort of dominoes where, you know, we had, Ronnie had to come in and say, hey, I had a dream about a song. And we had to show up in my driveway. And my mother had to write a check. And then we had to drive out there. And then Paul Buff, who's basically what you would call the father of surf music recording in Southern California, he had worked with the Shantays who did Pipeline at his studio, and he'd worked with um, other bands and so forth. And uh, he eventually sold his studio to Frank Zappa mm-hmm. uh, later on in 64, 65 era. We, this is, remember, we're talking December of 1962 when this is all happening. And so he, Paul had been quite a, an entrepreneur on his own. And so he took the song in the 45 and it comes out on DFS, Dale F. Smallin. That was the manager's name. Oh, so we put it on its own label. I see. And he printed up 100 copies and brought the copies to me and everybody at my house and said, what do you want to do with these? And I said, well, I want to get it on the radio. And the other guys took their, their copies and sold them to buy instruments and, you know, a buck a copy in those days. And so everybody just kind of took their 25 and went their merry way. And then uh, a couple of weeks later... Um, a guy uh, named George Hoka came to uh, Paul Buff's studio and um, Paul Buff gave him a copy of the 45 of Wipeout Surfer Joe. And he goes, well, that looks, that look, that sounds cool. Let's, I mean, take it to LA, you know, <laughs> where you got to go, you know? Yeah. So he took it to, uh, to um, Merritt Distributing Company where Richard Delvey worked. Now, Richard Delvey was the drummer for the group, The Challengers. And they were a very popular local band played a lot of TV shows, uh, POP Park, Ocean Pacific Park, rather. He was, they'd done a lot of things. So he, he had a friend uh, named John Mariscalco, who was a producer. And so this um, George Hoka gave him the, C, the, the uh, 45, and they played it. And he played Surfer Joe, and then he turned it over and played Wipeout, and he really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so he called his buddy uh, John and said, hey, John, this, this looks like a hit you want to uh, put it on your label and it turns out to be princess records. So they put it on princess and then it was the place. So how do you get it on the radio? Yeah. And back in 1962. Well, <laughs> how it got on the radio was, uh, when, um, John Mariscalco was in Los Angeles. He went to a restaurant one night and, uh, he was talking to this waitress and, she happened to be somebody who knew some radio DJs. And uh, she said, hey, I know this guy Johnny Hyder in Fresno on KYNO. And if you send it to him, he'll play it. So he mails a copy to Johnny Hyder in, in Fresno. And so uh, this is around by February, March or something. Anyway, he mails it to him and the guy plays it at midnight on a Thursday night. And it turns out to be the fifth most requested song of the night because people, they they would kind of start it. And then the next night he played it again and it became the number one most requested song. And so that showed that the public liked it. Well, we brought it back down to LA and went out to KFXM, which is San Bernardino and they played it out there. And so we're talking about a couple of months here of, of, uh, of playing outside of LA. And then uh, a guy from dot records who, John and W, uh, they took it to them and said, hey, we think this is a hit. So Dot picked it up and put it out as a 45 and and just gave it the big push. Randy Wood, who was the producer at that time, or president of of Dot Records, started started sending it out to all of his people, and then it just went like fire. So by June of 63, it was like number one in Los Angeles, and then by September of 63, it was number one in various places all around the world. Wow. So it was kind of like a, a big rocket ship uh, for us all summer long. It played everywhere. We, we got to play the Hollywood Bowl and huh. all kinds of places that were, were the happening in those days. So we had quite a skyrocket start. Wow. And you're still in high school. We're only 16 years old, sophomores huh. in high school. Yeah. 
three of us were sophomores. Ronnie, the drummer, he was uh, a senior getting ready to graduate that year. So he was the old man of the band. He was 17. <laughs> wow. Again, it's one of those things where when you have a song that people like, nothing else seems to matter. And I've heard the story over and over where, you know, something would happen. And even when the artist and the producer or record label would hate a song, but the public would love it, and out of nowhere, they'd make it a hit. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if you ever heard of the guy Art LeBeau. Oh, sure. He was a, he was a big promoter, radio station DJ. Well, it was taken to him, and he passed on it. Huh. You know, he said he didn't like it. In fact, uh, I hadn't talked to Paul Buff, the engineer on it, for 50 years. So when Wipeout got to be 50 years old, I found out where he was. He had sold his studio and moved to Nashville. Yeah. So I went, I drove, I flew to Nashville, interviewed him and his wife. My wife and I went, Jean, and I went and went to his house and just talked to him for an hour. And uh, he tells me the story. He says, yeah, I, I took it to Art LeBeau. I took it to Capitol. I took it to all these people. They all passed on it. You know, it's kind of like the public likes it. The, the record, you know, presidents don't. You know, it's one of those situations where the people, the people love the song as they do today. Yeah. I mean, you know, people still love to hear it, and, and it's being played now with Major League Baseball at the World Series just sent out a contract to use it at the stadiums. Every time something happens, like a big home run, or they're going to wipe something out, they're going to play it. Uh, so they pay us every time they play it. That's so awesome. It's, it's got a life of its own and, and going strong. Well, of course, the interesting thing about Paul Buff is he went on to start Allison Research, which was the home of the Keypex, the first noise gate, really. He did the first automation, console automation, things like that. So he became, and not so much as an engineer, but as a recording engineer, but as a design engineer for audio, he became huge in the business. Right. And, you know, I hadn't known that about him. I really wasn't in Nashville that much, but I didn't know that he has a photographic business as well, where he makes photographic company equipment for professional photographers. Oh, it's I didn't know. Paul C. Buff Incorporated. So he is a, he was an inventor. In fact, that was going to say is that when I went to his house, his living room, I mean, we're talking a large house in, in Nashville up in the hills there, just full of boxes of stuff of all <laughs> his inventions. Everything that he had worked on, prototypes, just all over, boxes and boxes and boxes. So he was doing stuff his whole life like that. I, I knew that he'd gone on and done some engineering things, but uh, I didn't know he did photographic until I went back and saw his place. He has a nice big business there. I think his wife, Debbie, runs that place at this point. And so, because he passed on a, a couple of years back. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he's, uh, yeah, he was quite a, like I say, we call him the father of surf music recording out here because he was like the cheapest studio in Southern California and he had a way of playing his studio. In other words, he set you up exactly the way he wanted you to sound. He put the amps where he wanted and, and the drums and mic'd everything. And so he was like making that sound. And, and some people say, well, how come the safaris, when you play safaris play, don't sound like the original wipeout guys? I go, well, we bought all new equipment, <laughs> you know, all we had was one amp, you know, and yeah. a couple of small, and a couple of guitars, not even a bass guitar. That was a harmony bass, in fact. So when we bought, Fender bought a, I mean, a Fuller bought a Stratocaster, and, and Pat Connolly bought a uh, Precision bass. I already had a Jazzmaster, so I then later on bought a Jaguar, I had a Telecaster. And so, you know, I used those in my, our small amps, you know, we kept blowing them out because got to remember in 62, 3, and 4, we didn't have sound reinforcement. You know, there weren't any digital boards in those days, or analog even. So we had to play loud in these gymnasiums. And the microphone, we had a sax player that played with us. He would use the mic that played through the PA system for the, for the uh, basketball games. So it was just, you know, we had to just play loud. And, and so, you know, it forced us to buy bigger amps. So we bought the, the Fender Showmans because they were built right here in Fullerton. Mm -hmm. And so the, you know, Leo Fender turned us on to the Fender Showman amps and that kind of thing. So kind of progressed. Wow. Well, okay, let's get to Point Panic then, which sounds way different from Wipeout. Well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Wipeout was, like I say, created in the studio. I'll, actually, 100% of our songs were all created in the studio. We didn't go, to, we didn't go home and practice, come in with songs. 
<laughs> we would, it's kind of like we always showed up and said, let's just create. So Point Panic was a creation the same way, except now we have a sax player. And so there's a sax part of it that wasn't there on Wipeout. In fact, uh, the sax player was part of the band, uh, Jim Pash, but his dad wouldn't let him play that night because his dad wanted him to go to Juilliard. So he kind of would keep Jim away from us from time to time. <laughs> so he didn't get to go to the studio and uh, do that song. That's why there's no saxophone on it, wow. or it would have been if we'd have had it. But basically, the Safaris, as a group, the, the five of us together, four and five of us together, we created music as we went along. And what it would be is like over the, over the next, uh, well, all through the summer, I think we recorded Point Panic somewhere in September of 63. We'd played a lot of concerts with a lot of surf bands, you know, all kinds of Dick Dale and we played with the Ventures and all the different bands who were, you know, up and coming and the Tornadoes and, you know, any, any band that was going along. And we would pick up notes and feelings from the way they played. And so we were kind of uh, evolving as we went along. We're only 15, 16, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not like finished musicians and we've got a style, you know, like the Beatles, you know, they were like 24, 25. That was their style. They weren't going to change it, you know, from somebody else, but we were much impressed. We'd also go on a lot of TV shows and lip sync, Wipeout, but we'd go on the show, there'd be the, the Drifters would be there, April and Nino, all the people, Hollywood acts that were around at the time, and we would listen to these songs, and these things would kind of, you know, get inside of us, then we'd go to the studio and go, hey, I remember hearing this, boom, you know, we'd put that in a song, and so Point Panic was an amalgamation of, of all of those kinds of feelings that we were getting throughout our learning process. So that's why it was that way. Did you do it at Paul Buff Studio as well? No, we, we, okay, well, what happened was, is we, when we got on Dot, we were on for that summer, and we didn't do any more recording until September of 63. Uh, what happened was, is that they said, okay, boys, you need a um, album to go with your 45. So we said, okay, we've got these songs we want to do. And they go, oh, I'm sorry, Dot requires you to do this list of songs. And these were songs that were in our repertoire. In other words, we used these songs to play our uh, gigs with. Mm -hmm. We were playing three and four hour dances. So we had about a hundred songs that that we could play because we didn't want to repeat anything. So we played like 25 songs an hour, you know, we just kind of run through them all. But anyway, um, they said, okay, uh, we're going to record. So yeah, let's go back out and record at Paul Buff studio again. So that's what we did. We went out and recorded all the songs that are on the, the blue wipeout album. Are you familiar with that album? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All those songs like, yep. And you know, all of those things, we recorded all that in one day, huh. all of those songs. <laughs> okay. The next week, the album comes out. Wow. Now, does that sound possible uh. in 1963? <laughs> no. It doesn't sound possible so, in any time. <laughs> no. Def- and you did, we did all the songs in one day. So we played it just like we did a concert. You know, we just plugged in and played all the songs. Well, what happened was, is that the, uh, our producers, which at this time were, were Richard Delvey, uh, had taken a group into Hollywood, recorded all the songs without telling us, made the album, signed them to Dot as the four original, as the safaris, and then because our manager knew that the boys didn't record the album, it's going to come out next week, I better take them out to Cucamonga and have them at least record it. So when we got the, the album, uh, he brought the album to our house and we put it on my stereo and, I, and we're playing it. And Ronnie goes, that doesn't sound like my drums at all. Wow. You know what? That doesn't sound like my voice or the lead guitar or the, you know, that doesn't sound like us. Who is this? And, and, uh, and Dale goes, well, they overdubbed you a little bit because you're not in the union. <laughs> well, for, for one thing, they never called us to get into the union. And so consequently, after that, it all went, you know, to, you know, up in the air. And uh, so if you'll notice the, the first version of, of uh, Wipeout, there's five, there's a picture on the back of all five of us. And that was taken at our first away gig in Fresno at the Cinnamon Cinder. Do you remember those clubs? Yeah, yeah. Cinnamon Cinders. Yeah. Well, we played the Cinnamon Cinder. We were only 16, right? 
we were too young to be in the club because we weren't 18. Yeah, right? yeah, right. <laughs> so, so we had to stay in the stu- in, back in the, in the uh, dressing rooms until we were going to play. And as soon as we were done playing, they would take us off stage and put us back in the dressing room until the next set. <laughs> so anyway, that picture was taken uh, by Dale. Uh, I think it was Dale. Uh, or it may have been my dad even, but I don't remember. Anyway, of the five of us. So if you look at the album, there's five. Well, what happened was is Jim Pash, the sax player, his dad sued Dot Records for fraud because his son was not on the album and his picture was on the back and he's only 14 years old. Oh, <laughs> wow. So it's a typical Hollywood, I'm going to get you one way or another kind of program. But, but again, it's one of the domino things. It's kind of like it had to happen that way or it wouldn't have been, or wouldn't have happened. You know, if we would have said, Oh, you know, we're going to, uh, we're going to go record this ourselves and so forth. But we didn't, we just didn't follow the orders. And then when this, this happened, we had to get five lawyers <laughs> and they suddenly went in and looked at the contracts that, and found out that these are not legal contracts because we're underage. You got to go through it. And so they set up, uh, we had a lawsuit and went to court and got our publishing rights and writer's rights back and, and all of that. So all of that happened for the good because without this lawsuit, we would have gotten nothing because it was kind of like a pyramid scheme. You know, they signed us for $200 and they sold our rights to, to uh, Dot Records for $750, but they never shared any of that money with us. You know, things like that were going on because that's the music business. Yeah. You know, they, they, they just take advantage of musicians because they can. You know, they have the money, they have the time. But again, it wouldn't have happened the way it did if they weren't thinking that they were winning. Yeah. You know, and we were going to lose. But we, we just hung in there and... At, by, by about September of 63, uh, we were off of the dot contracts. Everything had been redone. We had the Jackie Coogan laws, which were for abused kids. We were under that, so they set up trust funds for us all. So all the money that dot made on everything and had to go into the trust, and so all our money was taken to the trust, and we weren't going to get the money until we were, until we were 18 or we were uh, married. Mm-hmm. So we had to kind of, you know, we lived on, you know, what we could make on gigs and, and a small portion of the money, but it was okay with us because we never had any money anyway. So we didn't know what we were missing. So um, we continued to play, but then we, then Jim Pash, his dad, Ed Pash, happened to know a guy at Decca Records. And so they saw Wipeout as a thing they wanted to get. So in the contracts, everything was switched over to Decca. So we spent the next two and a half years uh, recording for Decca. So that's how we got our, after the Wipeout album, then there was five albums that we did for Decca. So we did, we got to go in and record and do our own music. Yeah. I mean, it was like carte blanche because I don't know if you know Charles Bud Dant. He was a big Hollywood producer that did all the Hawaiian music for uh, Decca. There was instrumental bands and he'd go to Hawaii and pull out ukulele players and, and record them and, did all that kind of great stuff for Decca. So they gave us to him and he basically said, boys play. And so <laughs> he just turned on the recorder and just let us play. Didn't tell us what to do, not to do. We just made up our songs as we went along and chose what songs we wanted to play. It was really great. So again, that's another one of the dominoes that allowed us to be creative in the studio. Wow. So we spent the next two and a half years recording and recording. And then, uh, you know, we had, Point Panic and Scatter Shield and Dune Buggy and a bunch of songs. We did like 17 original songs uh, from that period. And the rest were covers of songs that we love to play uh, on the rest of the album. So we had a good time going to Hollywood, playing. We recorded in Uni- at uh, United and Gold Star and uh, Western, uh, you know, some great studios yeah. uh, there. So we had a great time going to Hollywood. Wow. Okay. So... Surf music has ebbed and it has exploded in popularity and, and it goes through these cycles through the years. And Wipeout, it seems like, also does that as well. Unlike other songs, it's maybe have a second life. Wipeout seems to have a continual life. When you look at surf music in general and over your career, what seems to bring it back? Well, you know, like you said, Wipeout has a life of its own. It's Wipe out, you can wipe out on a motorcycle and a hot rod and a ski accident and anything. So, you know, it fits all occasions and, 
and baseball, like I said, with Major League Baseball is using it this year because they want to wipe out their opponents, you know, uh, yeah, and yeah. they play it when they did it. In fact, when they played uh, when Dodgers and the um, Boston Red Sox, and I think it was the third game when they hit a big home run, which against the Dodgers and took the game, they played wipeout at the stadium. I heard it. Uh. So, you know, it's one of those things where it fits there. But the idea of surf music itself, obviously the Beach Boys and the Beach Party movies, uh, beach clothing, uh, surfing, um, you know, the clothing market, the surfboard market, the surf music market, you know, those things have all sort of come in and out of style as well. Uh, looking like a surfer, wearing surfer clothes. I mean, you know, uh, there's still surfboard shops. You know, I mean, Hobie is, is a surfboard shop, but it mostly has clothes. You know, they have a few boards hanging around. Mm-hmm. But surf music itself is one of those things that fits in lots of situations in terms of, of excitement. Like we've done a lot of soundtracks uh, from the movie Flipper. When that came out, they used one of our songs called Surf Scene. And it's good background music. You'll hear it in elevators and in the backs of different things. Uh, even at the when the Lakers were in the uh, playoffs, the finals, uh, a few years back, they played Wipeout there. You know, so there's there's all these reasons to use Wipeout, Wipeout, Wipeout. But I don't know. I consider Wipeout more of a pop song rather than being just a surf song because many of the people that have heard it, in fact, in 1989, the group The Fat Boys made a, a – a rap version of Pipe, of Wipeout that went number one. And I got a gold platinum album for that, uh. you know, because it's our song. And, you know, we ended up getting about eight, eight or nine flat platinum albums because of people reusing the song. The Beach Boys used it on the cruising album. And, and there's all kinds of British albums that have used it. The Ventures have used it, you know, just about everybody. But in terms of the pure surf music, uh, it was a fad because in those days, Remember, we were dancing. I mean, we would we'd play a Friday and Saturday night for dances. There'd be four or five hundred people all dancing, and we were part. They were part of our show. In other words, when they were out there dancing, having a good time, it would energize us. And the music we play higher and faster and louder every as the night went on. You know, yeah. So music itself was just exciting. Okay, so we were a, a part of that thing, and there was there were hundreds and hundreds of surf bands. Uh, there's been books about about an inch thick of how many surf bands there really were. If you ever check into that, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. And then even in 63, when Wipeout was number one, it came back again in 1966, all on its own, and got to number 16 on the Billboard charts, Jeez. all by itself, without anybody. And we weren't even a band at that point. We'd kind of disbanded because of the Vietnam War. Uh-huh. A couple of guys had been drafted, and everybody was doing something, so... It was kind of like we weren't even able to get back together to, to take advantage of that. But the idea of surf music itself, like people want to come to a concert now. Most of them want to sit down, you know. Yeah. So surf music itself, like today when I do a show, I play surf music the way I heard it and the way I play it. And I also tell the story of how Wipeout was made and how surf music was going across and about surfing. Like my wife and I were both surfers. We started surfing at about 13 years old. And been surfing all along. I think I just we just stopped a few years ago. But basically, we've been surfing our whole life, and it was part of who we were mm-hmm. at the time. So the music fit in, the dancing fit in, the clothes fit. It was just, and even Leo Fender got to realize he started with the Telecaster, and then we made the Stratocaster. That was Dick Dale's choice instrument, and also the little Fender reverb tank. It's a spring reverb tank that gives surf music its sound. You know, he's still out there playing today in clubs. So it's still out there. It's just not, not you know, like right now at the Grammys that are be going on. You know, it's not on the tip of anybody's tongue, but it's still there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you just brought up gear, and I want to talk to you about that, because if anybody would know the difference, it would be you. Between the original gear in, that you started with in the 60s, and you were a Fender guy, and what's available today how is it different to you? Well, you can obviously go quite digital, but I try to stay with the Fender Twin Reverb, which is a tube amp. Uh, the tube gives you a much more ringy and um, sustaining kind of a sound rather than just clipping it with a digital you know, type of amp head. Mm-hmm. So the Fender Twin is available. They, they've made a few reissues on the 
fender uh, reverb box, the tank as they call it. I've got a couple of those re- issues because my original one I donated to the Musicians uh, Hall of Fame in Nashville. So it's sitting there uh, on display. But I still use that part. And then in the pedal board area, I use the, the Boss pedals that are just basically analog pedals. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of the digital stuff, but I do have a, a um, an El Capistan uh, delay because when you play Apache from the organ England, you have to have this real delayed sound. So I have that. But I have used things like tape echoes, uh, echoplex uh, in the past, but most of those, they're not really good for the road because the tape won't stay on the, on the drive. Yeah, yeah. It messes up, so we've had to go digital there. But we basically use the tremolo, uh, vibrato kind of a thing, use the, uh, you know, the boost box and the tuner and uh, the digital delay. And I have a little Fender reissue stomp box that has the Fender... Um, t- a reverb tank uh, inside it. So when you punch a button, it does a, a reasonable facsimile when my reverb unit stops working or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what I use. Yes, but if you pick up something new or something that's a reissue as compared to what you used way back when in the beginning, do you notice a sound difference? Well, yes, I do. Uh, the, dif- the difficulty is, is that when you're still performing you need a better quality of sound because it's just, the road is really hard on your equipment. And, you know, like we flew to Hawaii with our showman amps and they proceeded to drop a couple of them out the bottom of the airplane bomb bay door, oh. you know, exploded them all over the, and they flew them back to Honolulu, had them repaired and sent back out to us. So, you know, it, the road has got a hard on equipment, but yeah, you can definitely tell, like I have, I have a 69 uh, Fender showman, dual showman and I have a 65 Fender dual showman that I use on gigs at times when I can bring them with me. So I try to recreate the original sound with those. They, they have the original JBLs in there and the original transformers from the original uh, amps that were built. So there's definitely a, a difference, but I can tell you a little quick story. I was playing the San Juan Capistrano outdoor at the mission. They had a series of concerts under the stars and during the sound check, I was playing. I had my showman there, my Strat, and my Jaguar, and Jazzmaster. And I'm, we're doing the sound check. And later on, in the, after the sound check was over, I'm out by the board. And this lady comes up to me and goes, you know, I was out there sweeping the floor, getting things ready for tonight. And I swore I sa- it sounded like the safaris to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's a great compliment that somebody who didn't even know who was playing that night sounded knew what the band sounded like yeah. and then said you know it sounds like the original band and that's that's exactly what i do i just basically we we hybrid it a little bit making a better quality sound out of it but when you run it through the digital pa and all that we try to get our stage sound the way we want and then can recreate it so we get pretty darn close for a for a band that's uh, been around 56 years now well, let's talk about that for a second. So you're still out gigging. Yeah. That's your family that's playing with you, right? Right. Yeah, I have my son as a drummer and my wife as my bass player. My wife and I have known each other since we were 12 years old. We started going steady when we were 17, and she would be out there dancing at the places we were playing with other guys you know, and things like that. So she knows all the music. In fact, she was a concert violinist and a singer, backup singer, songwriter. And so in 1990, uh, we were playing with some of the guys and they, they, a couple of the drummer we were using and another guy says, you know, Bob, we're kind of tired. You know, you play so fast, we can't keep up. So they quit. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my wife says, well, I'll pick it up. So she started, she'd been playing the bass for a few years already on her own, playing in other bands. And so she started playing for me in 1990, 89, 90 time. And uh, that sounded good. And then we got another drummer and went on to 2000. And then in 2000, the drummer said the same thing. Hey, I'm tired. So my son, Joel, came in in 2000, has been playing with me ever since. And I have another son, Devin, who's, who loves to play guitar. He's playing in another band right now called the Termalinas down in San Diego that he's working on some recording projects. So I've got another guy replacing him right now. And that guy also plays keyboards, so we've got a, a keyboard instrument that we can throw in if we do some Kingsman songs and things that, that'll add a little repertoire, a little advance to the, the music. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's basically that, but it's one of those things where 
we've my sons have, have been raised on the music because you know I started playing Devin started playing when he was about eight years old guitar and Joel started playing when he was about eight on guitar and they were both in marching bands and junior high and high school so they've played music all along so they're really really good and so you know the the album the Hurley Sessions that we have uh, on uh, iTunes is a live recording that we did at at Hurley uh, Clothing Company in Costa Mesa. Uh, they asked me to come down there one day. Fender had built the 50th anniversary Jaguar guitar, and they painted it like a Hobie surfboard, the same color, and they wanted to auction the board and the guitar off, so they had me come down and play it as kind of an advertisement uh, for the event. And so when I was there, I noticed they had a great studio in the back of their clothing warehouse. I said, hey, can I come down and uh, bring my band and just set up and then have your guy turn on the, uh, the digital, I did it on Pro Tools, mm-hmm. and just said, just turn it on, we're going to play. So they said, okay. So they, they allowed us to come down, and we spent the whole day recording the whole album <laughs> as we did the original Wipeout album. And then we just played all the songs that we played in our set live. We didn't do any overdubbing except... I think we did Surfing Bird, and my son Joel sings it, so we did an overdub on the vocal, but we just went straight through and played it and then just edited it on uh, Pro Tools and put it out on iTunes, and it's been a great success. Wow. Very cool. Did you know Leo Fender? Sure. Yeah, I used to go down to the factory. I got my 64 Jaguar from the factory. He even had them laid out there and said, well, pick one you want. <laughs> so I sat down there and started playing them, and the red 64 Jaguar was there, and so I got it. Yeah. He was part of, we were on their brochure. If you look on the brochures from the 60, 63, 64, they've got our picture on the old brochure mm-hmm. showing us advertising their, their equipment. Before I, I let you go, if I don't ask you this question, people are going to be upset with me. So Uh-oh. the way I understand it, what you used on Wipeout was your Jazzmaster and the Bandmaster, right? Bandmaster amp? Yes, uh-huh. And what did Jim Fuller use? He used a Duosonic, his Duosonic guitar, and a small speaker, that, a small amp that was already there. It was like a uh, 12-inch speaker in it, uh-huh. and they direct mic that and my bandmaster, and the bass went direct into the board. And then the drums were Ludwig. It was a uh, it had a uh, side tom and a floor tom, snare, bass, and then cymbals and a hi-hat. So that was basically that. Well, the picture that we have of the 1962 picture that's in the in on my website. The safaris.com shows a picture of the equipment we used, except Pat played a bass guitar, harmony bass guitar at that time. That was it. You seem very well-versed in modern recording techniques and gear. Just a little I talked to you. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, well, that was kind of the... I was in charge of the equipment and the recordings. Everything that we did, I was involved with those early days. And I've kept up with it. I've had you know, different studio, home studios, worked in other studios. So I've kind of done a lot of it. In fact, I was there at the the NAMM show to to go into the Yamaha digital sound front of house board uh, training classes because I really wanted to be able to speak better to sound men that have all this digital stuff. And I wanted to know the real capabilities of it. So I've always kept up technically. I taught electronics and things like that. And high performance engine building and things over the years. So I've always kept in charge of electronics and, mm-hmm. and really had a lot of fun with it. So I still love to do it and, and I'm still out there working and working on building a new studio back in Nashville. Uh, we haven't got the property yet, but we're, we've got the ideas for it with some other friends. So still going to try to keep going in the game. Are you going to move from California? Uh, that would be the start with where we've got some ideas on uh, sort of locating there first see what it's all about and then start looking to build a studio and then have a place in California, but then eventually probably move to Nashville over the next several years. That's interesting because you're in Laguna, right? Laguna Beach? Exactly. Yeah. That would be the ideal spot for a lot of people. Yeah, it is ideal. I love it. It's a great little spot. I'm looking right at the ocean right now. It's beautiful sunset going on about now, but uh, we wanted to just do something different for the next 10 years. And I, we've got a lot of friends in Nashville that we've done some uh, music with that we want to work with back there that are building new studios. And I wanted to work with them in building their studios. So I need to get back there to do that. So we thought we would uh, go back and this year and uh, see if we can put a homestead together and uh, 
start recording again. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Last question then for you, Bob. Yeah. And if anybody could answer this, you could because of the lifetime of experience. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, you have to stick with it. It has to be a passion. I mean, there's going to be a lot of good, but there's going to be a lot of bad. And you have to have enough desire and a love to create music to want to stay with it. As I've stayed with it since I've been 15 years old, it's something where it's just in your blood and you've got to do it. It was like when I was at one of the sessions for the AES group, this one lady sitting down the row from me goes to a lady up on the stage. You know, I really want to do this. My mom and dad want me to be a, an accountant, you know, mm. but I really want to be an engineer. I really want to, and the lady on the stage says, just do it. If you've got that burn, just do it. So, you know, it's kind of like people tell me, how do I get a hit record today? Just like we did. You go into the studio, you record the record, and you go out and you hit the pavement. You just work as hard as you can. And you know what? You got to have some luck along the way, as we did. I mean, we were f- five guys from Glendora, California. I mean, it's a hayseed, little orange-growing town, bedroom city. You know, nobody, nobody comes from there that's any good. I think maybe somebody, uh, somebody else did one day. But basically, you, you've got to stick with it. If you want to do it, you got to do it. And you got to go where it is. Like, if you're going to go, you're going to do... Uh, rock and roll, you got to go to Los Angeles. If you're going to do country, you got to go to Nashville. <laughs> you know, you just have to go where where it is. Yeah. But you don't always have to be from the best place. You just have to end up in the best place. You can find out more about Bob and the Safaris at thesafaris.com. T-H-E-S-U-F-A-R-I-S, all one word, thesafaris.com. Thanks for listening and being my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 